This is a part of the series. This is my body. The section that uh, we're dealing with is I've called On the March. It's what is the purpose of the church. We're organized for service. What does that include? And we're getting into the the, the nuts and bolts, you would say, of it. Um, I've entitled this message, Code Talkers. You know, as I mentioned in our last study, every successful army in history has had a, a corps of engineers and, and workers that helped them to victory. From the Romans who built the roads and bridges all over Europe, you can go back in history and look at this, as they conquered new territories, they actually built the roads that their army could travel <laughs> to have victory. You know, from, So you can see it in history from there to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers today. And the same thing can be said about military communications. Every successful army has had a great system of communication from army headquarters all the way to the front lines. The first military communications involved the use of runners. That's what they were called. They were called runners. Remember the story of Absalom? and his war against his father, King David. And, and in that story, Absalom was killed. And then Joab sent a messenger to tell the king, to tell King David that his son uh, was dead. In 2 Samuel 18 and verse 21, it says, Then said Joab to Cushi, Go tell the king what thou hast seen. And Cushi bowed himself unto Joab and ran. Cushi was a runner. And this was part of that, that military communication. So they would send runners, or they would send and receive simple signals by using flags or lamps. Um, sometimes they were encoded to be you know, unrecognizable by, by the enemy. And these types of communications evolved into what uh, was referred to as the signal corps. Have you ever heard that before? The signal corps. The Roman system of military communication is really a, an early example of this signal core. And a code was developed for such signals, and this has been seen throughout history, as communication equipment and technology has evolved. Signalers eventually became known as code talkers, up to World War II, Korean War, even Vietnam War. Now it's so sophisticated. <laughs> it's amazing. But code talkers were people who used obscure languages as a means of secret communication during wartime. There were approximately, as an, a great example of this, uh, there were approximately four to 500 Native Americans in the United States Marine Corps during World War II whose primary job was the transmission of secret tactical messages. The name Code Talkers is usually, uh, when you mention that, it's usually associated with the uh, bilingual Navajo Indians, those speakers that were recruited during World War II uh, by the Marines. And uh, they served in those communication units to the Marines. However, code talking didn't really originate with them, but it was pioneered by Cherokee and Choctaw Indians during World War I. 
And, and that helped to change a defeat to victory over Germany in World War I. You can see a distinct change in the course of that war if you go back and you, you do the research. From the time before they, they had these code talkers and, and the time after they became a, a part of the military communication in that war. In fact, friends, Adolf Hitler knew about the successful use of these code talkers during World War I, and he sent, and I don't know how many of you know this, but he sent a team of some 30-odd anthropologists to learn Native American languages before the outbreak of World War II. It just turns out that it was very difficult for them, in fact, too difficult for them to learn the many languages and, and the dialects that existed in these tribes. So, essentially, they gave up. And speaking of the these code talkers, you know, tests under simulated combat conditions demonstrated that the Navajos could encode, transmit, and decode a... a three-line English message in 20 seconds versus the 30 minutes required by machines at that time. So you can see the advantage of it. The Navajo language, the Navajo code became a vital part of military communications during World War II and in fact remains the only spoken military code to have never been deciphered by any enemy to this day. Of course, they don't use it anymore. They have different ways of encryption now. And that's all very interesting. You know, God has His own code of communication in this great controversy, and those who accept Jesus will learn to become what I call code talkers. <laughs> and each, month, each one of us must learn how to talk to God. I mean, it's true, isn't it, that a relationship cannot survive if there's no communication, and neither can a war be won without that good communication. In this case, this spiritual war, this great controversy that we find ourselves in. Now, there are different ways to communicate with God. But prayer being just one of the ways that I want to look at with you, and one of the main ways to communicate with God... Let me share this with you. This is from the Youth's Instructor, August 18, 1898. The strength acquired in prayer to God will prepare us for our daily duties. The temptations to which we are daily exposed make prayer a necessity. Prayer is a necessity. It will prepare us, as she says, for our daily duties. It gives us strength. The psalmist, he said in Psalms 5 and verse 3, he said, My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. That's why I always say, keep looking up. Keep looking up. We need to keep our eyes fixed upon our Savior, our example in all things. And we'll learn much from Him by His example of prayer. And so here the psalmist, he's saying, not, not only did the prophet say that prayer is a necessity to us, the psalmist says, start first thing in the morning. Our day is to start with prayer. And a looking upward by faith to 
Jesus. And so, you know, if our day is to start with prayer, we should learn how to pray, right? We must learn the code of praying, so to speak. Notice this fantastic book, Christ, uh, Christ's Object Lessons. I share this with you, page 142. She says, Christ's lessons in regard to prayer should be carefully considered. There is a divine science in prayer. I like that. Science is, is the discovery of truths. There are certain procedures that uh, scientists use so that the evidence that they find isn't anecdotal. It's done scientifically in, in such used... Uh, methods are such, used in such a way that... I'll get it out here. I'll spit it out. <laughs> These methods are used so that they can be beyond reproof. See? And she says there is a divine science in prayer. She goes on. She says, And his illustration brings to view principles that all need to understand. He shows what is the true spirit of prayer. He teaches the necessity of perseverance in presenting our requests to God and assures us of His willingness to hear and answer prayer. So here, we're going to learn some things by Christ's lesson. What are we going to learn? We're going to learn there's a science to it. There are principles that we all need to understand when we come before our Heavenly Father and we speak to Him. We're going to learn what these is. In Luke chapter 11 and verse 1, we find an interesting request made uh, by a disciple of Jesus. This was our scripture reading for today. Luke 11 and verse 1, It came to pass that as He was praying in a certain place, when He ceased, one of His disciples said unto Him, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. Now, this is very interesting, because, you know, these men were raised going to the temple, and they were accustomed to praying. They were accustomed to hearing prayers by the priests and the rabbis, but something was different about the way Jesus prayed, just as there was something different about the way John the Baptist prayed. That's why he said, he asked the Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. They wanted to be like Jesus and they the, and have the same type of communion with the Heavenly Father that He had. They saw this and, and it constrained them to want to, to pray like He prayed. Again, back to Christ's Objects Lessons, page 140. Christ's disciples were much impressed by his prayers and by his habit of communion with God. One day, after a short absence from their Lord, they found him absorbed in supplication. It means he was absorbed in praying to God. Seeming unconscious, unconscious of their presence, he continued praying aloud. The hearts of the disciples were deeply moved. As he ceased praying, they exclaimed, Lord, teach us to pray. Two things that stand out over and over again about Christ's prayer life, uh, as you read through the Gospels, and, and you'll see this, is that 
he would often leave the disciples and he would find a solitary place to pray. And he would be found in prayer first thing in the morning and he'd be found in prayer at the close of the day. Sometimes you find where he prayed all night. But that wasn't the norm that you'll find in the Gospels. He didn't always pray all night. But sometimes we run into situations where we're, we're in prayer for long times, aren't we? Listen to this. This is from the Desire of Ages, page 260. In speaking of Jesus, she says, All day He toiled, teaching the ignorant, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, feeding the multitude. And at the eventide, or in the early morning, He went away to the sanctuary of the mountains for communion with His Father. Often he passed the entire night in prayer and meditation, returning at daybreak to his work among the people. So he would often pray all night. But always in the morning and the evening, in the, the beginning of the day and at the end of the day. This was his custom. This is something we will we learn from observing him. I mean, what an example, amen? What an example for us. We're to start our day off by seeking the Lord in prayer. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end just pray in the morning. Paul gives this counsel to us in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. He says, pray without ceasing. Well, Pastor Joel, does that mean we're going to be on our knees 24-7? <laughs> Praying to God? No. Is that what Paul means? Pray without ceasing? Is that what he means? Now what he's talking about is that we're to be in a spirit of prayer all day. Ready to speak to the Lord at a moment's notice when, uh, especially when temptation is lurking nearby or we need encouragement or we need grace or we need the words to say to someone. We are to have an attitude of prayer, an attitude of communication. Always open to, to our Father in Heaven. Now, there are some biblical examples of scheduling prayer times as well. For example, notice what the psalmist says in Psalms 55, verses 16 and 17. He says, As for me, I will call upon God, and the Lord shall save me. Evening and morning and at noon will I pray and cry aloud, and He shall hear my voice. So there were three times during the day specifically that the psalmist, that King David, prayed. He set aside these times for prayer where he would pray aloud. He would find his place, his sacred place, his closet as Jesus described it. He would go to that place in the, the evening, in the morning, and at noon. And maybe this is the same counsel that Daniel took to heart for the Bible says that he to set aside those three specific times to spend in prayer. Daniel chapter 6 and verse 10. Then when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house, and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. So this was his custom. So we see that the 
The psalmist did this. Daniel did this. I think they weren't exclusive to that. I think it was a custom for all the followers of God. What about today? I mean, we live in a fast-paced world with our days filled to the brim with activity without what seems like a moment to spare, doesn't it? I just don't have time to do that three times a day, Pastor. But friends, isn't it true that if we really wanted to do something specific, then we would find the time to do it? It's a matter of priorities, isn't it? Those who have given their hearts to the Lord and accepted Him as their Savior and Master are constrained to spend time with Him. You love Jesus. You want to spend time with Him. Many times it's it's a temptation to spend too much time in the in the book. Remember temperance in all things. This wanting to spend time and having this attitude of prayer, this is a principle that's written in the new heart. But friends, the the principle must be acted upon or it will become like an unused muscle. It'll lose strength. from a devotional book called This Day with God, page 238. Daily we should reconsecrate our lives to the Lord's service and open the door of the heart to welcome the heavenly guest and to receive of His love. Daily. So when the psalmist says, in the morning I will pray and look up, that's when we give God that permission. We reconsecrate ourselves to God. We open our heart to Him, the door of our heart. Remember in Revelation chapter 3 talks about Jesus is standing on the, at the door knocking each and every day. He's ready to begin with us. He's knocking on that door. Are we going to open the door or not? That's a decision we've got to make. And by looking up to Jesus, we desire to be like Him. He is the perfect example for how we are to live. So, I would encourage you, behave as Jesus did. Start your morning with prayer to gain the grace and power needed for the daily grind and the, and the daily battle. Take a moment in the middle of the day to speak to the Savior and, and He'll refresh your strength. And at the end of the day, come again to the Lord and thank Him for His watch care and His help for that day. Ask forgiveness for any sin that you may have committed during the day. I mean, make sure that you're right with God and with others before you go to sleep because, friends, do I need to say it? I mean, every time we close our eyes and go to sleep, we may never open them again. We may never wake up. And and this is an individual work. But it should also be a custom of the family as well. And we've kind of talked about this before uh, when we looked at the roles of the family and such. I mean, we see an example of this actually also as well in uh, certain symbols of the sanctuary services. If you go back and you, you look at the sanctuary and the services there, the Hebrews were to have a morning and evening burnt offering to the Lord. It covered all the people of Israel, the family of God. 
they had an evening and morning burnt offering, symbolizing their total consecration to Him as a people. Notice this, Exodus chapter 29, beginning with verse 38. Now this is that which thou shalt offer upon the altar. Two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. The one lamb thou shalt offer in the morning, and the other lamb thou shalt offer at even. So they had a they had a burnt offering in the morning and in the evening. They were to start their day, you see, in consecrating the people to God and end their day with that same commitment. And this is a lesson for us who, who have families. So not only do we, we have an individual prayer life, but we also include our families and in consecrating our families in the morning and coming together again in the evening. Notice this from the book, The Ministry of Healing, page 392. In a sense, the father is the priest of the household, laying upon the family altar the morning and evening sacrifice. But the wife and children should unite in prayer and join in the song of praise. In the morning, before he leaves home for his daily labor, let the father gather his children about him, and bowing before God, commit them to the care of the Father in heaven. When the cares of the day are past, let the family unite in offering grateful prayer and raising the song of praise in acknowledgement of divine care during the day. So evening and morning with the family. Or to have an individual prayer time and a family prayer time every day. Now, as for individual prayer, Jesus said that we should find a quiet, out-of-the-way place. If we go to Matthew chapter 6 and look at verse 6, Jesus said, But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. You know, Every Jewish house had a place for secret devotion. Um, the, the roofs of their houses were flat, most of them. They didn't have pitches, they had flat roofs. They were well adapted for you know walking on, conversation and meditation. But usually over the porch or the entrance of the house... Uh, there was frequently a small room, the size, same size as that porch, but it was above the porch. It was a story above the rest of the house. And that place was especially appropriated uh, for the retirement where one could go and pray. Jesus referred to it as thy closet. They knew what he was speaking of, see? So there in that closet... In secrecy and solitude, the pious Jew might offer his prayers, which would be unheard and unseen by anybody but the searcher of hearts. <laughs> that's, that's also, it's very interesting because this is the place commonly mentioned in the New Testament as the upper room or the place for secret prayer. You know, when they gathered together in the upper room, that was a large room that... that the Jews used often to gather together for prayer and meditation and teaching. 
the meaning of the Savior is that there should be some place where we may be in secret, where we may be alone with God. Jesus had selected places for communion with God, and so should we. So, you know, find a place in your home, make it your place to pray. I remember talking about this several years ago. I was told of a man who knelt down in the corner of his garage each morning before he went to work. And and when he came home from work, he would kneel down and pray before he went into into the, the home with his family. That was his secret place to pray. Notice this from God's Amazing Grace, page 290. We need often to retire to some spot, however humble, where we can be alone with God, in the secret place of prayer where no eye but God, God's can see, no ear but His can hear, we may pour out our most hidden desires and longings to the Father of infinite pity. And in the hush and silence of the soul, that voice which never fails to answer the cry of human need will speak to our hearts. Now, we're going to spend some time in Matthew chapter 6, so put your finger there. We'll come back to it in just a moment. And let's go to Psalms 95. Now, we're going to get into some of the the principles of prayer or the science of it. Psalms 95, verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. And then Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 9, he says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted Him, speaking of Jesus, and given Him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And there are many, many like verses. But the outward and visible change of position, friends, in worship often reflects the inner and, and spiritual nature of the exercise. As we show respect to men, for example, by shaking their hand, at least in our country, there are other, you know, some countries bow. So we should show respect to God by assuming appropriate postures in worship. You read throughout the Bible, kneeling and reverence and bowing are fitting ways of such respect. But I also want to make it clear, and you've heard me say it before, that prayer is not posture. We can pray in any situation. However, kneeling in awe and humility when possible shows reverence to God. If it's possible for you to do so. Now let's go back to Matthew chapter 6, let's look at verses 7 and 8. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before you ask Him. Well, why are we asking Him then? (laughs) Right? I mean, that's a question that popped in my head years ago. But I don't want you to to misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. Let's break it up a little bit. Jesus didn't condemn repetition for He Himself repeated some prayers such as when He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you you look at verse 44 there in Matthew 6, 
says, and he left them and went away again and prayed the third time saying the same words. So he's not, he's not condemning repetition per se. The key word in verse 7 is vain. He says, use not vain repetitions. Meaning to use idle words over and over. I remember an elder from our old church that would repeat the same prayer every time he had prayer duty. I mean, it got to where you knew exactly what he was going to say each time he prayed. Now, that isn't necessarily wrong, okay? But it can become a ritual habit, and it can lose its heart meaning. It can become vain. Tibetans, for example, they believe their prayer wheels repeat the same prayer countless thousands of times without thought or effort on the part of the worshiper. Those types of prayers are not really from the heart. They're just a a meaningless ritual that God doesn't hear because it's not from the heart. I mean, when I thought about it, I thought... I mean, how would you like it if your friend called you every day and said the same thing over and over and over without any thought? Our High Calling, page 130. Learn to pray short and right to the point, asking for just what you need. Learn to pray aloud where only God can hear you. Do not offer make-believe prayers. In other words, prayers that are basically vain or uh, um, sound flowery or good, you know, but you don't really mean, make-believe prayers, but earnest feeling petitions, expressing the hunger of the soul for the bread of life. So, Jesus is not telling us never to read a uh, repeat a prayer uh, that is from a contrite heart, but in praying meaningless prayers. That's what he means. He wants us to be persistent in presenting our prayers. Let me give you an example of that. Keep your finger again in Matthew 6. Turn to Luke chapter 11. (coughs) Excuse me. Luke chapter 11. We're going to begin with verse 5. Jesus said, Which of you shall have a friend... And shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. See, the custom was, the Asian custom especially, custom was when you got visitors, you you feed them. And that's still a custom in Asia, South America, some places in South America do as well. You know, some of the pastors down there will go on visitation, and every time you stop by a house, you get fed. So here he's saying, hey, i got a friend that's come by. I don't have anything to set before him. Verse 7, and he, and he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, that means persistence in requesting or demanding. That's what that word means. Yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. And I say unto you, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. What's Jesus teaching us here? 
Well, we see again and again the head of the house repulsed the urgent appeals of that midnight caller, his friend, didn't he? But his friend wouldn't take no for an answer. He remained persistent in his effort. And don't misunderstand. God is not unwilling to grant that which is good for for us or for any of his people. He doesn't need to be persuaded or cajoled into doing something good that he would otherwise be unwilling or reluctant to do. Don't misunderstand. God knows our needs. He's fully able to supply them. He's willing to provide exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, the Bible says. But what Jesus is teaching us is to be persistent, to be constant, to have consistency in our prayer life. Notice this again from the book Christ's Object Lessons, page 142 again. He teaches the necessity of perseverance in presenting our requests to God and assures us of His willingness to hear and answer prayer. That's what he means by being persistent. It's not that we've got to beg God to hear us and answer our prayer. He's teaching us to have a consistent prayer life, to be persistent in it. Now let's go back to Matthew 6. And Jesus here, he gives us an example of prayer. Matthew 6, verse 9. Jesus says, After this manner, therefore pray ye. Now, I want to point something out here. What he means by after this manner, what he's saying is, he's saying after this pattern. He's not saying necessarily after these identical words. He's saying a pattern in the content, but not necessarily in the form. You understand? Because some people think, oh, all i got to do is read to say the Lord's Prayer, and, you know, it becomes like the Tibetans almost. It becomes a vain prayer. What Jesus is saying is after this manner. Pray like this, this pattern. I'll give you a pattern. Over and over and over. Exactly. Repetition. Yeah. So Jesus says, After this manner, therefore pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven. So see, he's given us an example, a pattern, and they include certain things, and we'll break it down here in a little while. He says, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I find it very interesting as you read through the Gospels, Jesus seemed always to be showing how the traditions of men were obscuring the truth of salvation. Isn't that true? And, and this was even seen in the prayer life of the people. And I think that's strikingly true of the prayers that the rabbis taught the people to repeat. Because prayer had become lengthy, it had become repetitious, and its sincerity of thought and expression was obscured by an impersonal form, a literary form. I mean, beautiful in its phraseology, but too often lacking in, in sincerity, true sincerity such as people who repeat the Lord's Prayer. It it becomes a form. 
It's beautiful in its phraseology. But too often it lacks in the sincerity of the Spirit. And so this was a very, compared to those, those traditional prayers that the, the, the uh, rabbis had taught, this was a very short, unique, compact, to the point prayer. The Lord's Prayer, in this prayer, Jesus rescued from the mass of that flowery verbiage, you know, that which was really essential. He restored it to a simple and a, a compact form whose meaning could be comprehended by the most simple person. Even children can understand it. So, while reflecting to a certain extent the prayers of Judaism at that time, the form of the Lord's Prayer is nevertheless it's original. It's inspired. I mean, it's, it's very good. And its universal acceptance around the world reflects the fact that it actually does express more perfectly than any other prayer the fundamental needs of the human heart. And that's what Jesus was teaching us. This is what, what principles you need. This is what, how you should pray. It's not a self-centered prayer at all. It's not a self-righteous prayer. Notice this from Child Guidance, page 524. The Lord's Prayer was not intended to be repeated merely as a form, you see, but it is an illustration of what our prayers should be. Simple, earnest, and comprehensive. Isn't that amazing? Simple and comprehensive. That's what the Lord's Prayer was, really. Simple and comprehensive. In a simple petition, tell the Lord your needs and express gratitude for His mercies. Thus you invite Jesus as a welcome guest into your home and heart. You know, if you take a look at the Lord's Prayer more closely, you'll see that it's comprised really of seven petitions, which are divided up very much like the Ten Commandments, as an example. The first three petitions are toward God, and the last four petitions deal with the relationships we have with, with uh, others. Likewise, the first great commandment in the Ten Commandments is love to the Lord, and the second great commandment is love to our neighbor. You see how Jesus broke that up for us? God should come first in our prayers. His counsel and will should be the great priority that's in our lives. And so that comes first. But we must also not neglect our relationships uh, here on earth, which is why Jesus' model includes those around us. It wasn't just a prayer just to the Father, about the Father. It also included those around us. And this means that we are to keep in mind the need of others, isn't it? We're to include them in our prayers. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 25, he said, Brethren, pray for us. As an example. Pray for us, he said. And who can forget John chapter 17? That's a prayer for us, isn't it? By Jesus himself. And we're to love our enemies and pray for those who despitefully use us too, aren't we? In Luke 6 verse 27, Jesus said, But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies... 
Do good to them which hate you. Bless them that curse you. And pray for them which despitefully use you. The, the example that Christ gave is also one of a personal nature. Our prayers are to be personal talks with God, not because He doesn't know our wants and needs, but because we need Him in our life. God wants to bless us, and we want to be blessed by God. It's personal. Notice this. This is from Steps to Christ, page 93. Prayer is the opening of the heart to God as to a friend. Not that it is necessary in order to make known to God what we are, but in order to enable us to receive Him. Prayer does not bring God down to us, but brings us up to Him. So if we go back to the Lord's example, that prayer that He gave as an example, you'll notice that in His example He said, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. So as we break it down a little bit, we can understand that we're to ask for things that are according to God's will. That means what? That means that we want God's will to be done, right? If we ask things according to His will. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 14, John said, And this is the confidence that we have in Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. And if we know that He hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of Him. He's saying, if, if we know that it's God's will and we ask, we're going to receive it. You know, when I was a kid, <laughs> when I was a kid, there were some things that I would never ask my dad for. Because I knew that it wasn't His will for me to have it. It'd be a waste of my time. It'd be a waste of His time for me to ask for something I knew I would never get. I think kids figure that out pretty quickly, don't you? They know who to ask to get what they want. <laughs> but thinking about that, let me ask you a question. Think of this. Is it God's will that we stop sinning? Well, yes. You say, well, yes. That's like obvious, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's God's will that we stop sinning. So we can ask God to help us stop sinning, knowing that it is His will that we do so, and He will not only hear our prayer, He will answer it and give us victory over that sin. Does that make sense? I think the problem is, and the problem we have as a people that we fail, is we don't ask God that His will be done and for strength to overcome that sin. Because it's His will that we overcome it. But some sins are so darling delicious that we don't... <laughs> See? So I'm telling you. That's what I'm saying. You said, but some sins are so darling delicious sins that's just... That's the battle we have with our carnal nature, isn't it? But God's, it is God's will that we overcome that. So He's made provision for that. 
sometimes people will tell me that their prayers aren't being answered. Well, the devil paints it as, it's okay. There are many reasons why we still... There are many reasons why we do will hold on to it, and some of them may be because we have a misunderstanding of what God's will is. There are many reasons we can get into. And, and people who are stuck into that cycle mainly are the ones who, like I said, they'll come to me and they say, well, my prayers aren't being answered. And there, are many, there can be many reasons for this, but upon questioning some of these people, I usually find out that they're asking for things that are not in the will of God for anyone to have. In James chapter 4, verse 3, he says, Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. So, when we go to God and we're talking to God in prayer, we got to want God's will to be done. And that takes faith. It's a matter of faith. If we really believe God's way is best, we'll want His will to be done. And sometimes we don't receive an answer because we aren't committed to receiving it. You see? I'll tell you, in my experience, many who complain of unanswered prayers are found to be living in sin. Open sin. The Bible says in Proverbs 28 and verse 9, He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be an abomination. I'll tell you what, when I share this scripture, Proverbs 29, most people are astonished. Even many of the Christians I share it with, they're astonished. The fact that a person who turns from the law of God also desires to pray suggests that they're not, they're not careless They're not an irreligious person. But they're a person who objects to making God's law the guide of their life. They've either been taught, well, the law of God was done away with. They're astounded by... (laughs) It's amazing to see some of the expressions on their face when I tell them that. Yeah. That's why you that's why understanding these principles of prayer helps will help someone like that. You've got to be committed to God. You've got to want his will to be done. I've had people say, Well, it wouldn't hurt to pray. That's like, well, it wouldn't hurt to buy a lottery ticket. You know, there's no faith in that. I mean, there are many who are willing to serve God but wish to do it in their own way. And some, there are some that accept a part of the law of God as a standard of our life, while others claim, like I said, that, that it's completely been done away with. And so only a few take the whole of God's law as an authoritative expression of His will for His people. It's just that remnant people. And we know that the final battle is going to be oh, that deals with the law of God versus the law of man. You see, because sin puts a barrier between God and the sinner. God cannot accept the service of those who have deliberately turned away from His law. That's what this whole great controversy is about. 
To do so would sanction willful rebellion. You see? So, not only must we listen to God, we must obey Him. I mean, if you think about it, why, why should we expect God to hear us if we'll not hear Him, right? And why should we expect Him to do what we ask if, he, if we will not do what He asks of us, right? And like I said before, some people pray to the Lord as a last resort. And it isn't from the heart that is committed to listening to Him or obeying Him. Oh, it wouldn't hurt to pray. You see, friends, we must be committed to and trust God. We must be willing to do His will in whatever the matter is we're praying about. Psalms 37, verse 5. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. James 1, verse 5. James says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. You, you want to know how to pray? Ask God to teach you how to pray. That's what we're talking about here. Ask God, why aren't my prayers being answered? He'll show you. Oh, but you're, you're in sin. Oh, God, forgive me. Help me to, I repent of it. Help me to overcome this. Verse 6. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Well, it wouldn't hurt to pray, I guess. That's what James is talking about here. A double-minded man. Here's another principle that we find in God's example, in Jesus' example, and we find in the Bible. It says uh, that we are to pray in the name of Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name because He's our mediator and He's our Savior. Through His merits we gain access to the very throne of the universe. It's through Him, you see. And this is something we should be very thankful for and should say so in our prayers. John 15 and verse 16. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. We are his ambassadors. We ask in his name. Ambassadors of the United States go and they may ask certain things in the name of the United States. Not for themselves personally. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He's our mediator. See? So we ask in His name. John 16, verse 23, And in that day shall ye ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, He will give it you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. See, we are to ask in the name of Jesus. Let's go back to Christ's object lessons again, page 147. Notice this. Press your petition, she says, to the Father in the name of Jesus. God will honor that name. 
Because we know when we ask in the name of Jesus, He'll honor it because it's according to His will. If we truly recognize what Jesus has and is doing for us, beloved, we will have thankful hearts. This is another part of prayer that Jesus gave us as an example. We'll praise God. We'll be thankful for His goodness. When we are thankful for the mercy and forgiveness that God has bestowed upon us, we'll want to bestow it upon others, you see. So part of our prayer life and our prayer science, our principles, is to be thankful to God. Philippians 4 and verse 6, Paul said, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. Colossians 4 verse 2. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. And when you come to, to God and you, you begin to communicate with Him, come with a thankful heart. Praise His name and give thanks. We must also be willing, friends, to forgive others. This was a part that you find in the Lord's Lord's example of prayer to us. I mean, we expect God to forgive us. We must be willing to forgive others. And sometimes, I know, I understand, sometimes this takes time. Sometimes we've been so hurt by someone that we feel that we could never forgive what he or she's done to us. But let God work on the heart. And you'll see that change. There's a story. There's a story about a, a slave. There was a, a free man in Africa, and one of the, the black leaders of Africa captured a bunch of these, these men, and they sold them as slaves. And he was sent over here to America, and he became very bitter towards that, that black man that had captured him. Very bitter. He hated him with all of his heart. And, and his master here in the United States acted kind of like that that man that had captured him and he he began to hate his master he did things to to in rebellion against him and such until he ran into some christians and he became converted then he began began to look after the interests of his master and he became so trustworthy that the master when he went to buy more slaves he said you can pick the slaves that for me and he picked these slaves, and there was an old man there being sold as a slave. And, and the master said, you're not going to buy that old man. And so they, they said, well, you, you've, you've purchased oh, half a dozen slaves. We'll throw him in for nothing. And they took him home. And this slave began to care for that old man that was purchased as the slave. It turned out the master caught him taking care of this this old slave. The old slave was ill. He was old. And he wondered, why are you in here? Why are you taking care of this this man? I told you we should have never got him. He said, is he your father? He said, no, he's not my father. Is he, is he a brother, an uncle, or some kind of relative? He said, no. He said, he was the one who captured me and sold me into slavery. But God told me to love my enemies and to forgive. And I'm obeying my Savior. 
Friends, we must be willing to forgive others if we expect God to forgive us. In Mark 11, verse 25, Jesus said, And when ye stand praying, forgive. If ye have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. You know, I remember a man in our former church that became extremely agitated and jealous of another church member. So much so that he continually confronted the member with accusations. And this particular member, he tried to apologize over and over again, but the man wouldn't accept it. The man eventually, that was the accuser, he eventually became very ill and he was close to death. And I remember going to visit him in the hospital with the pastor, and the pastor shared this same scripture with him. And he pleaded with him to accept the apology from the church member, but to his dying breath he refused to forgive. What a sad state this man was in, and it showed something of his heart's spiritual condition. Many church members looked up to this man and thought of him as very pious, but he had a major heart problem that eventually was seen, and maybe seen too late. Beloved, when Jesus lives within, we will show forth his attributes. (laughs) He will heal our hurts. He'll give us the courage to forgive if we let him. You see, our unwillingness to forgive prevents God from hearing and answering our prayers. (coughs) So the first thing is to be willing to be made willing and Jesus then helps us step by step in the process of forgiveness. So I encourage you, go to Jesus with everything that's on your heart. So, in wrapping up, as we learned earlier, there is a divine science to prayer and we found this to be true, I think. If, and if we wish to experience a true revival of primitive godliness that we, we need to have as a people to hasten the return of our Savior, we must know how to pray. We must learn the code and become code talkers. So I'm going to go through, here's, here's ten things that we've learned. First, Set standard times each day for personal prayer in the morning, midday, and evening, or however, just personal prayer times. And those with families must also set times in the morning and evening for for prayer with them. You know, I mean, nothing lofty. Start out with a goal of only a couple minutes. And if you're faithful, you'll see, you'll actually see that time increase. You may have to guard against too much time. You have to get to work, you know. Second thing, find a quiet and remote place for prayer, one without distractions where you can speak out loud to God from your heart. Uh, Third principle, be reverent and kneel down if possible. Remember, friends, that you're approaching the God of the universe, the Creator. Angels veil their faces in His presence. But also remember that prayer is not posture. There are situations when one need not or cannot kneel. Okay? A fourth principle, be persistent in your prayer life. You know, have that consistency. No vain repetition prayers are answered by our Creator, we found. Fifth principle, be personal in prayer. Remember that our love is toward God and man, so pray for the needs of others as well. A sixth principle, ask according to God's will and be willing to obey Him. Okay? Which leads into principle seven, trust God. 
because he has your best interest at heart. Principle 8, pray in the name of Jesus for we are under his authority. He's our Savior and our Mediator. He's our Lord. A ninth principle, be thankful to God and praise him in your prayers. And tenth principle, be willing to forgive others their trespasses against you. All that and you'll find in your prayer life God will soften your heart that you'll be able to do that. You know, speaking of the code talkers and the Navajos, Navajo was an attractive choice to use as a code because few people outside the Navajo themselves had ever learned to speak the language. And there were virtually no books in Navajo that had ever been published. Their work in World War II was so secret that no one knew about what they did even after the war. The Navajo code talkers received no recognition until the declassification of the operation in 1968. 20-some years. Nobody knew that they were, were used. On December 21st, 2000, the U.S. Congress awarded the Congressional Gold Medal to the original 29 World War II Navajo code talkers. And silver medals they awarded to each person who qualified as a Navajo code talker, which was approximately 300 more. You see, they received, finally, after 20-some years, they received, well, in 2000, it would be more than that, after 50 years, they received recognition and honor for their service. You know, friends... The good news for us is that the code of communication for God can be learned. And we have a book on the subject. So let's learn the code and talk with our God so that we may have victory in this conflict. And one day very soon, we will receive recognition and be honored by our Savior for our service, for being a good and faithful servant. We will not receive a gold medal, but we will receive a crown of gold on that day, friends. And I'll leave you with this. It's from Acts of the Apostles, page 56. Morning by morning, as the heralds of the gospel kneel before the Lord and renew their vows of consecration to Him, He will grant them the presence of His Spirit with its reviving, sanctifying power. As they go forth to the day's duties, they have the assurance that the unseen agency of the Holy Spirit enables them to be laborers together with God. Friends, I encourage you, let us labor together with God, now and forever. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your holy word. We thank you that you've, you've protected it all through time so that it can be given to us here in this day, and we may learn from its precepts and its principles. And Lord, we, we're learning here the science of prayer. We're learning about these principles and how we can speak to you, and we, we humbly ask that you help us in this. We may have habits that we need to change, and there may be things that we need to uh, make arrangements for. Please pour out your grace upon us that, that things may be in line, so that we may have proper communication with you. We thank you so much for your love and your care and your willingness to teach us and to save us through Jesus. 
Please continue to be with us throughout this holy day and the coming week ahead till we can meet again and worship Thee in spirit and in truth. We thank You for hearing this prayer, for it is asked in the name of Jesus, who is worthy. Amen.